friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoonfed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here I'm on vacation, so if you notice any changes in the audio quality, that's because I'm on vacation and still keeping this up for you guys. Now we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're bringing you the latest research, one spoonful at a time, straight through your earbuds. Now then, let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, earlier tropes might mean earlier discharging. Second, distal DVTs are better, right? Or is a DVT, well, just a DVT? After that, it might mean getting close to your patients, but POCUS could be useful in COVID as well. Then, let's face it, the flu antiviral data in adults isn't terribly good, but what about in pediatrics? And then finally, back to DVTs, if COVID on its own is coagulopathic, can we still trust that D-dimer? This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the rocking Andy Hogan, Seth Walsh Blackmore, Christopher Tome, Rebecca White, and Rebecca Breed. Now then, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled EMS Blood Collection from Patients with Acute Chest Pain Reduces Emergency Department Length of Stay, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So for probably the majority of your chest pain patients, you're likely going to want a troponin and then repeat that troponin at three hours, depending on the onset of their chest pain, just to be certain that nothing gravely cardiac is going on. So when all else is coming up normal in terms of their tests, waiting for that three-hour troponin, though, it can seem like a long time and can really delay your patient's disposition. If the first troponin could be taken earlier, let's say when the patient's on their way to the hospital, then the three-hour troponin could also come earlier, and then ta-da, you've saved time. Can it be done? This study examined if troponin levels from blood draws done pre-hospital could be used during emergency department workup of chest pain. Now, this study actually involved three EMS agencies all going to a single academic hospital enrolling patients as a convenience sample. When done, the pre-hospital troponin was used in the heart scores for chest pain patients, using the pre-hospital troponin as time zero troponin. Doing this, they had a 100% negative predictive value for 30-day major cardiac events. They established that this method could shorten these patients' diagnostic pathways by about 72 minutes hopefully reducing their length of stay as well. This sounds promising, but the results will have to be repeated in probably more of a controlled setting. These samples were all convenient samples, and not all EMS services are necessarily going to be equally facile with the phlebotomy. Also, there's a large disconnect between record keeping of EMS services and many of the hospitals that they take patients to which could make implementation of this kind of a program quite difficult in a lot of places. All in all though, even if it's not perfect at first and not done on every patient even, when it is done, this could save time. In a spoonful, these authors demonstrated that blood draws drawn by EMS services prior to hospital arrival could be used to measure troponin levels from an earlier time point, thus speeding up the chest pain testing algorithm and reducing length of stay. And then we have the second article, titled Outcome of Anticoagulation in Isolated Distal Deep Vein Thrombosis Compared to Proximal Deep Vein Thrombosis, out of the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Now, a classical teaching is that proximal DVTs are bad news bears, but distal DVTs aren't so bad. 
This is somewhat reflected in the guidelines that we have on this topic. For example, chest guidelines recommend that we do serial imaging without anticoagulation in select patients with isolated distal DVTs. Well, ASEP actually has a level B recommendation to anticoagulate these patients. Both recommend DOAX as first line. It's important that we appreciate the outcomes for both distal and proximal DVDs when deciding how to treat them, especially with variability in the guidelines. This was a single-center retrospective study of 1,922 lower-extremity DVD patients diagnosed by ultrasound who were then treated with anticoagulation. That's important because patients who were just observed and with serial imaging, they were not included in this study. Now, 746 patients had isolated distal DVTs, essentially any DVT below the knee that was still deep, and the rest had proximal DVTs. The isolated distal DVTs group were more often related to surgeries, immobilization, or trauma, while the proximal DVTs were more often unprovoked or in the setting of an active cancer. Now, okay, on to some outcomes. In those with isolated distal DVTs and those with proximal DVTs, they had similar recurrent rates of VTE at 12 months. That manifested in PE 60% of the time in distal DVT patients and only about 40% of the time in proximal DVT patients. That's interesting, more PEs in the distal DVTs group. I don't know why. Also, more distal DVT patients had died at 3 months, 7.2% compared to 3.9% but that equaled out by 12 months. I wonder how much those active cancers that we saw more of in the proximal DVT group might have played a role in equalizing those rates of mortality at one year. So lastly, the last thing that we have to mention when we're talking about anticoagulation is of course bleeding rates, which were similar between the groups and DOACs outperformed all the other anticoagulants in terms of VTE recurrence, major bleeding, and death. Now, while this study did not include patients who were not anticoagulated and was not restricted to emergency department patients, this is still a good study to know. Distal DVTs sure don't seem safer from this data, but without the group of not anticoagulated patients, it's kind of hard to tell. Like, if anticoagulation as a treatment worked very well for proximal DVTs, and doesn't do as much for isolated distal DVTs, you might actually expect pretty similar results. In a spoonful, patients with isolated distal DVTs and proximal DVTs experience similar rates of mortality, VTE recurrence, and bleeding events within 12 months. DOACs were the best choice in terms of anticoagulant. And now we have the third article titled Assessing COVID-19 Pneumonia Clinical Extension and Risk with Point-of-Care Ultrasound, a Multicenter Prospective Observational Study out of the Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Focus has already shown itself to outperform chest x-rays in many trials for the diagnosis of pneumonia. So of course, it's probably going to do pretty well in COVID too, right? Now, the amount of pulmonary involvement in COVID has been linked with disease severity. Which makes sense, obviously, it's kind of a respiratory disease. And measuring this severity can be important in helping us make decisions about where these patients are going to go and how we're going to treat them. This trial was a multi-center prospective observational trial of emergency department patients with COVID-19. The patients included were those who tested positive with COVID-19 over a two-month period in 2020 and who had both a chest CT and a lung ultrasound performed. The authors wanted to see how well lung ultrasound could predict poor outcomes. 
in this case 30-day mortality or ICU admission in this population as compared with the CT chest findings using the CT severity score for grading. They also wanted to see if lung ultrasound severity was associated with admission versus emergency department discharge. By way of ultrasound technique, these authors had previously published a 12-zone protocol to score the severity. This study included 115 patients, 24 were discharged, 79 were admitted, and 12 were sent to ICU. The severity score by ultrasound worsened along each of these groups. So the severity score was 6 for discharged patients, averages here, 13 for admitted, and 18 for the ICU patients. The maximum score is 36. And these differences were reported as statistically significant. But, let me say but on that one, because that was by one-way ANOVA. And so I'm assuming that the statistical difference was between the discharged patients and the ICU patients. But I don't think that a lot of people, a lot of emergency department doctors, often have trouble deciding between those two options. The decisions that we care about are admit versus discharge or admit versus ICU. Those are trickier decisions. I'm rarely puzzled between discharge and ICU. Now, in terms of still some predictive value, a lung ultrasound score by this method of more than 12 points had a hazard ratio of 5.5 for predicting mortality or ICU admission. And this correlated pretty well with CT scores. I can't say this study, honestly, though, is really going to move the needle anywhere for me. But maybe in the future, stuff like this will have a bigger place in our clinical environments. And so this can be important. If in the future this could avoid us doing some scans, that'd be cool. In a spoonful, lung POCUS findings were shown to correlate with disease severity, mortality, and need for ICU admission in COVID patients. But it doesn't look like it'd be very clinically useful yet. Then we have the fourth article titled Influenza Antiviral Treatment and Length of Stay out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, back before we learned how to deal with droplet spread of disease, influenza was a major killer in children. Of course, I'm kidding, it's still a huge problem, and co-infection with influenza and COVID is actually way worse. So antiviral therapy is recommended for all patients who are hospitalized with influenza. Children fall into that group, but there isn't as much evidence on this population as there is in adults. So does it really help? This study was a retrospective study of data collected from the FluSuriNet database that included patients less than 18 years old with lab-confirmed influenza who were hospitalized from 2010 to 2013. There were actually two cohorts in the study. First was 300 patients with underlying medical conditions not admitted to the ICU, where 64% of them got early antivirals. Then there was another group, again about 300 patients who were admitted to the ICU this time, and 56% of them got early antivirals. In this case, the antiviral that was used was mostly oseltamivir, and it had to be started less than three days from symptom onset. So with early antivirals, there was an association with shorter hospital stay. It's a hazard ratio of 1.37 and 1.46, which were both statistically significant. That's 1.37 for the no ICU group and 1.46 for the ICU admitted group. So there was also an increase in the daily discharge probability. It's not a stat that I remember seeing in many other articles before, and honestly, I don't really like it very much. To me, it kind of sounds like a number that you picked from a list of possible possibilities because it looked the most impressive once you had the numbers crunched. Anyways, just being a little bit cynical here. Either way, the daily discharge probabilities increased by 37% and 46% for our two groups. 
Any antivirals started after two days though, like three days or more, that had no effect. So this trial was an observational design, but it seems like antivirals did have some effect. Not exactly a patient-centered outcome, just being the hospital length of stay, like it's nice, but it's not quite as crunchy as we'd like it to be, and this wasn't amazing quality data. But some effect was seen nonetheless, at least when used on very sick or more sickly patients. In a spoonful, flu antivirals in children had an association with decreased length of stay in hospital, both for admitted patients with underlying conditions and ICU patients. And then we have the fifth article titled The Impact of COVID-19 on the Sensitivity of D-Dimer for Pulmonary Embolism out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, COVID has blown up as something that causes a hypercoagulable state. And if we were not already constantly on our toes about testing for thrombosis, then COVID has really put us on another level. To worsen that, the symptoms of COVID can actually be very similar to those of a PE. In order to avoid a lot of CTAs in these patients, we'd like to do as few as possible because the radiation exposure, and it's just not necessary. If it's not necessary, D-dimers is a very heavy lifting tool. Is this D-dimer test as valid in COVID patients, or have we lost a trusty tool? This trial was a multi-center retrospective observational cohort study of about 1,200 patients from five emergency departments within a single hospital system that underwent CTPAs and D-dimer testing in the same encounter. The D-dimer had to be done within 24 hours of the CT, but wasn't necessarily done first because of some of their admission protocols actually had the D-dimer done at admission rather than earlier on, and if you're already going to get the CTPA anyways, then you don't need to do the D-dimer really if you're just thinking about thrombus. Anyways, the patients were called COVID positive if they had a positive test anytime during their stay. In these COVID positive patients, the D-dimer was 100% sensitive and only 12% specific. But that still gives us a negative predictive value of 100%. In COVID negative patients, the test was actually a little bit worse, 98% sensitive and 14% specific. So that's a negative predictive value of only 98%, which is really good, but it's not 100. So not only is the D-dimer valid, but it's actually a better rule out testing COVID patients. Now, another thing that was interesting about this trial is that they used two different tests. And using receiver operating characteristic curves for each assay, they found that they could have actually increased the cutoff of the D-dimer tests to improve the specificity by more than double while maintaining a negative predictive value of 100%. So one assay, they could have increased from 0.5 milligrams per liter to 0.67. And in the other assay, they could have increased it from 230 nanograms per ml to 662. Now, I'd love to see this repeated with a whole bunch of diseases. If we could really alter our D-dimer cutoffs, depending on what else this patient might have or has, that'd be really great because this would make it a really good test. I love to see 100% negative predictive values and using them to the best of our ability is a huge plus in my books. In a spoonful, the D-dimer test is an excellent rule out test for PE and COVID patients, and it's actually better in COVID patients than in COVID negative patients. All right, guys, that's all we had to talk about. Let's do a quick recap of everything that we covered. First off, we saw that troponin levels from pre-hospital blood draws may speed up the heart pathway, reducing length of stay without jeopardizing patient safety. From the second article, both groups having been anticoagulated, there were similar outcomes for both isolated distal DVT patients and proximal DVT patients. 
And don't forget, when trying to choose an anticoagulant, try to choose a DOAC. Third, lung ultrasound on COVID patients correlates with disease severity. How useful this might be clinically though, that's yet to be seen. Fourth, flu antivirals in sicker children, those in the ICU and those with underlying illnesses that are admitted, may decrease the hospital length of stay in this retrospective observational trial. And then from the fifth article, if you're worried about a PE in a COVID patient, at least try their D-dimer first when clinically appropriate, and you could save them a scan because it's still a really good rule-out test in these patients. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, and all the links to all the articles we've summarized can be found there as well. And on top of that, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is really to get better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.